Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here in Colorado, we recently passed legislation that very well could lead to the development of the nation's first public health insurance option for people who don't already qualify for Medicaid and Medicare. Today on the pod, we're going to talk about the inside story of how we got this bill passed with bipartisan support and what the policy does with Susanna Miser. She is Healthier Colorado's Senior Director of Public Affairs, who helped lead the effort to get the bill written and adopted. But first, I thought it was important to put this policy in context, especially considering that the political debate over public health insurance coverage has a history that's over a century long here in the US. We thought that the best, most entertaining way to deliver that context would be in the form of a high-speed, four-act audio play. That's right, I said audio play. So, before we get to my conversation with Susanna Miser, I present to you the history of the public option. Here we go. The Progressive Era. We open with a young campaigner handing out flyers on a corner in Los Angeles in the year 1918. Vote no on the Kaiser's Law. Read all about it. What have you got here? Hand over that flyer. Made in Germany, keep it out of California? That's right. This sickness insurance scheme from the governor is mumbo jumbo from the same people killing our boys right now over in Europe. You don't say. Well, I'm going to take my newfound right to lady vote and send this kraut nonsense back across the pond. During 1918, Americans were fighting Germans in World War I, and Californians were presented with a statewide ballot measure, Senate Constitutional Amendment 26, that would have created a state-backed health insurance program. Opponents seized upon the connection to our wartime enemies as Germany had instituted nationwide compulsory sickness insurance back in 1883, 73% of California voters, including women, as California adopted suffrage in 1911, voted no to overwhelmingly defeat the measure. At the beginning of the 20th century, some Americans were inspired by European examples of national health insurance programs, such as the British National Insurance Act passed in 1911. Sickness insurance, as they called it, as it was more directly tied to medical care connected to work interruptions, was pursued primarily at the state level instead of the federal level for reasons including constitutional constraint on federal activity and the highly heterogeneous nature of the country at the time. Between 1918 and 1920, several states, including California, considered creating sickness insurance programs, but every measure failed for reasons including opposition from the insurance industry and the American Medical Association. Act two, the New Deal. Okay, words are money in this telegram, you see, so let's end with a phrase that gets right to the point. Hmm, how about socialist conspiracy? Jumpin' Jehovah, that's perfect. You must be taking those amphetamines I prescribed you. Indeed I am. They're the bee's knees. Thank you, Dr. Hennessy. Okay, now let's walk this down to the telegram office and fire it off to Congress. The year was 1934, and the United States was in the depths of the Great Depression. The House of Delegates of the American Medical Association had just held a special meeting out of fear that the administration of President Franklin Roosevelt would succeed in incorporating a national health insurance scheme as part of the burgeoning Social Security Act. 
its members started flooding Congress's Ways and Means Committee, who would consider the bill, with urgent telegrams like the one from Dr. Hennessy that cited this, quote, nefarious plot, unquote. President Roosevelt would ultimately decide to leave health insurance out of the bill for reasons of political expediency, instead just sticking to unemployment insurance as well as pension benefits for seniors. The Social Security Act of 1935 would be signed into law on August 14th of that year. Roosevelt, however, had not given up on the idea of national health insurance. According to Roosevelt's Commissioner of Social Security, The public support for a national health program, which included health insurance, was amazing. The president was so enthusiastic that his first inclination was to make the health program an issue in the 1938 campaign. He then said he thought it would be better to make it an issue in the 1940 presidential campaign. World War II then intervened. President Roosevelt would die on April 12, 1945, shortly before the war's conclusion in September of that year, but not before he promised in his final State of the Union to communicate with Congress about expanded health security programs. His successor, President Truman, would pick up the baton. However, his attempts at national health insurance were rebuffed by Congress and the familiar old opposition arguments about socialism were bolstered by the Cold War that ensued post-World War II. Act 3, the 60s. Okay, let's talk about this Kennedy Medicare bill, Representative Lindsay. Sure, but first, let's get these drinks poured. It's already 10 a.m. How do you like your martini, Senator Javits? Gin or vodka? It's your choice. That's it, Lindsay! What's that? We offer people a choice between public or private insurance. That's the compromise we can offer to Kennedy's Medicare bill. Genius, Senator Javits! We really don't know if Senator Jacob Javits and Representative John Lindsay drank morning martinis a la the AMC television series Mad Men, but we do know that their legislation gave rise to the concept of a public option. After President Truman failed to cajole a Republican Congress into advancing national health insurance, and Republican President Eisenhower did not take up the idea during his tenure in the 1950s either, it was the next Democratic president's turn, President John F. Kennedy. Instead of proposing public health insurance to cover everybody, Kennedy supported legislation that would provide health insurance for Americans 65 and older, known as Medicare. However, he had trouble getting the bill through Congress. Republican lawmakers Javits and Lindsay offered two bills as a potential compromise to break the gridlock. In the concept presented by Javits and Lindsay, seniors could either accept government health insurance to be run by the states or a private health insurance plan. Those bills did not pass, but the concept of a public option was born. Meanwhile, Medicare did not pass before President Kennedy's assassination in November of 1963, but after Democrats won big in the elections of 1964, President Lyndon Johnson signed Medicare the next year on July 30, 1965. On that same day, he created Medicaid, a program that provided health coverage for certain low-income people by signing legislation that amended the Social Security Act. Eligibility for both Medicare and Medicaid would be expanded in the decades to follow. Act 4, the 21st century. Hey Jake, what do you think about trying to pass a bill that would create a public health insurance option for Coloradans? That sounds fun. Can we make a podcast episode about it after we do it? Totally. Okay, I'm in. The two Democratic presidents that would follow LBJ, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, would advance health insurance proposals that were focused mostly on private health insurance and employer mandates, 
and both would fail. In the 21st century, a new version of the public option would pop up again, first at the state level. In 2001, a proposal was developed in California called Choice, which was a model in which private insurers would compete in a managed environment alongside a so-called public option. The Choice proposal went through a series of evaluation steps, but did not gain much traction as a serious policy option until it was incorporated in the policy platform of Senator John Edwards in his 2008 campaign for president. Candidates Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton then also included a version of the public option in their healthcare policy proposals. Obama then, of course, went on to win the 2008 election, and the public option was included in the initial versions of the Affordable Care Act that were considered by Congress in 2009. However, independent Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut threatened to filibuster the bill if the public option wasn't taken out. And this threat effectively ended up stripping the public option out of the final version that was signed into law. Action on the public option would then shift back to the states. In 2017, the Nevada state legislature would pass a bill that would allow Nevadans to buy into Medicaid, but the bill was vetoed by their governor. In 2019, New Mexico passed a bill that initiated a study of the public option. And in that same year, in Washington, a version of the public option was signed into law. Also, here in Colorado, a bill was passed that would initiate the steps toward implementation of the public option. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, picking up where the play left off, here is my conversation with Healthier Colorado's Senior Director of Public Affairs, Susanna Miser, about the public option bill that was recently signed into law here in Colorado. All right, welcome, Susanna. You're not gonna, yeah, so Susanna's doing this against her will, so I'm gonna do my best as a host to elicit thoughtful responses uh, that don't sound like she's being held physically hostage in a <laughs> recording studio. All right, Susanna, so um, you were um, really point for us on getting this bill passed through the legislature, but first let's go back to the beginning why were we as an organization and we as a state um, even considering going down a path like this on health insurance? Um, ensuring that individuals have access to health care is a, a component of Healthier Colorado's mission. And in Colorado, we have found that um, health insurance is becoming increasingly unaffordable. In 14 counties across the state of Colorado, uh, we only have one insure on the market on the individual marketplace and so we are we were looking for ways in order to get more coverage and more affordable coverage into those areas and across our state and so um given that people uh, or rather given that uh carriers were entering the market i know we had a discussion internally about the possibility of a medicaid buy-in um uh, at least uh, a year or two ago and that led to um, study, I remember, uh, on our part. We also ran a poll statewide um, that showed that 76% of Coloradans, including majorities of voters who are Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated, uh, supported the concept of Medicaid buy-in. And I personally was surprised, and you, Susanna, are a Republican, 
Uh, what, how, how did you, were you surprised by it or, or not? Initially, yes. I think that there was some shock that there was such bipartisan support for it. But then when you really drill down into the numbers and look at who it is who is suffering the most across the state of Colorado, those are um, relatively red counties. And so in the rural areas of the state where people are feeling it the most, they need help, they need options. And so um, after drilling into the numbers, it, it seemed to make sense that they would that both Republicans and Democrats would be supportive of this based on uh, where they live across the state. Let's talk about uh, the bill itself. What does the bill do? So the bill itself requires uh, the various departments who participate in health insurance coverage, both Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing, who specialize in Medicaid, and the Division of Insurance, which oversees private insurance companies. They're required to come together and through a stakeholder process and uh, an analysis, determine what options are available in the state of Colorado that could provide increased coverage while also maintaining uh, an affordable price specifically for the individual market. So they will have to do the stakeholder process and actuarial analysis, present that to the General Assembly next November, and assuming that there is a viable course forward for uh, a public option, as we've come to call it, the uh, Division of Insurance or Healthcare Policy and Financing will have the authority to apply for a federal waiver, while the state legislature in 2020 runs legislation to set up the public option. Okay, so why not just go for a Medicaid buy-in right now? So in the initial actuarial analysis that we, along with a few other organizations, conducted, we found that there were a few reasons why a true Medicaid buy-in was not necessarily a, a viable option. And much of that has to do with the benefits package that Medicaid offers and that most individuals don't need the full services. Um, but in, the, in that analysis, we did find that there could be uh, potentially upwards of 20% cost savings for health insurance premiums by using public infrastructure to offer a product to individuals on the individual market. Uh, we just aren't necessarily sure what that may may look like, which is why we needed to first conduct an additional study utilizing and leveraging the resources and the information that both the Division of Insurance has access to, as well as healthcare policy and financing. And in, in this state, healthcare policy and, and financing is the department that runs Medicaid. Correct. Let's talk about the politics and the process uh, of this bill. Uh, we already talked about the the support we saw among voters um, as, as evidenced by the poll we ran. But when you got down to the legislature, you found that there was Republican support among legislators and we actually had uh, bipartisan sponsorship of the bill. How did those conversations go? What was that like? I think similar to the way that we saw the numbers play out in the poll, various legislators, especially those representing the rural parts of the state, which are predominantly Republican strongholds, they had heard from their constituents throughout the, the summer as they were campaigning that people needed relief, people needed help. Insurance continued to increase in cost exponentially over the course of the last you know, five, 10 years, and people needed help. And so these particular legislators, specifically those in the rural areas, the Republicans, were very much interested in figuring out what that solution might look like. Uh, but there was also the understanding that we didn't necessarily have all of the answers to what the solution was, uh, which is in large part why so many individuals were willing to support this concept, because it, it digs down into the details on what the state could potentially offer the, the people living in Colorado. 
And uh, along the way, in the process, what were the objections raised? Were there, you know, particular bumps in the road that we had to get past? So while we were crafting the bill, one of the, the things we were trying to balance was creating something that was a study so that we didn't skip a step and create a, a policy that wasn't able to be implemented or be able to provide that relief to individuals. But we also didn't want it to just turn into a study that sits on a shelf. We've had numerous task forces meet and they make their recommendations and they some get implemented, but very few actually look like they do after a, st a study has been conducted or after task force gives the legislature direction. And so we wanted to make sure that we also crafted in some level of action. And so we have we authorized the departments to go after that federal waiver, which essentially helps us with the implementation phase in 2020. But that also brought about some of the various objections that we received throughout the process, which was, are we giving the executive branch or the, the departments more authority than they should have by authorizing a waiver on something that we don't have all the answers around? So there was a little bit of objection that came up regarding that. Additionally, when it became clear based on legislative legal services, who is the, the arm that actually writes the laws in Colorado, the bills for the various legislators, they're the attorneys who are able to craft it. Uh, they had confirmed that they didn't see this as a as a 100 percent door opening to implementation, that we'd still need to run legislation in 2020 to set up the actual program. And so those objections started to fall by the wayside. Um, but then individual, interestingly enough, the debate in the Senate specifically turned to a conversation around abortion services uh, because there are certain provisions in, in our laws that say state dollars or tax dollars can't be used for those particular services. And so depending on how we offer this product, um, those services may not be available. And so that became somewhat of a, a sticking point as we moved through the, the Senate process, specifically with Republicans. So when we figure out on a state level what we want to do, we will also need a federal waiver to do this. What do you think? <laughs> what are the prospects uh, of us getting a federal waiver? So this is a relatively new concept. And to my knowledge, there isn't another state that has been able to move forward with waiver authorization or even had the opportunity to apply for this specific program. So depending on what it looks like, it could drastically change the outcome. Um, you know, if if we're looking at a 2020 waiver application process, it will be a Democrat state applying to a Republican presidential administration. Uh, so I do, though, think that, you know, Colorado has a history of being innovative and trying to find unique solutions. And hopefully uh, the concept that we come up with is something that the presidential administration would be interested in seeing play out. In terms of developing what this proposal might look like, what's the next big step then? So the biggest step is for the departments to convene the stakeholder process and hire an actuarial to start digging into the data and playing out in the numbers what this may look like. And so that process will take place throughout the summer and into the fall. Uh, that is step number one, actually conducting the study. And then the next major step is going to be when the departments have to present this option to the General Assembly uh, in December the the health committees, both Senate and House, come together to 
listen to the departments right before session starts so that they have an understanding of what is happening within those departments. And so this this proposal will be offered to every member of the health committees in in December to scrutinize what it is that the department put together. And then what, if anything, would have to happen during our legislative session, which takes place in the state from January to May uh, each year? So in 2020, what would have to happen during session? So assuming that the the state or that the legislature approves of what it is that the department puts together, the department has the authorization to seek waiver approval. So they will begin that process without any additional legislative um, guidance. The legislature, though, will have to craft legislation to set up the actual program, which involves um, putting together a budget, allowing a department to hire staff, crafting guidelines around what the product may look like. So essentially taking what the report is and putting that into law or codifying what it is that the report says. So there will need to be that secondary bill actually setting up, but it'll run concurrent with the state waiver application. So in a nutshell, this bill on its own doesn't create a specific public option program, but it's also not just a study. It sets forth a process that, um, pending the decisions of both the federal government and uh, other state action, uh, would result um, in a full-fledged program uh, that would provide at least some Coloradans with a public health insurance option. Is that a fair summary? Correct. Yes, that's a fair summary. And so uh, given your enthusiasm uh, in participating in this interview, I, I assume you'd be willing to come back uh, with an update maybe later this year or early next year to see how we're doing. Do I have a choice? Well, <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Susanna Miser, thank you very much for being on Wooden Teeth. You're welcome. Nice to be here. There you go. Thank you to Susanna for doing that. It definitely took some cajoling. Thanks also to our audio play actors and Healthier Colorado team members, Emma Hennessy and Chelsea Stallings. I'll see you next week.